Here is your Radio Theater Channel weekly podcast for download. The RTC still has the very best old-time radio on the live streaming. And if it's music you love, tune in to the RTC Music Channel, where this link and many others are on our website at oldtimeradiolisten.com. Now, here's Jim. Hello and welcome to the RTC Weekly Download. I'm your host, Jim Dolan. Today, we have a true crime story, an unsolved crime from Los Angeles, and that's coming up 30 minutes from now. But right now, we'll feature Nightbeat, and Night is a Weapon from 1950. Night Beat. This is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. But tonight's story began when one man tried to destroy another with the strangest weapon of all. Darkness. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. When your job is to walk into the darkness and discover what makes a city tick, you pick up some mighty strange friends. The winos dreaming of a muscatel paradise in cold, dark doorways. The petty larceny boys with their fast deals. The painted little dames defying the world with their brassy laughter. The homeless, the hopeless. In the city, night is for the lost. And sometimes you feel a hunger to be with someone of the everyday world. Some nice, well-adjusted soul who's got a reason for waking up tomorrow morning. I guess that's why I dropped in to see Bessie Chatfield tonight. Bessie's a little gray-haired librarian who has charge of a small storefront library on Huron Street. No one around this time of night but Bessie and a young fellow in a gray raincoat alone at a reading table. Mr. Stone, well, we haven't seen you, oh, in such a long time. <laughs> well, since Forever Amber, you haven't had the kind of high-type literature that interests me. <laughs> and when you finally do drop in, look what time you get here. Ten o'clock, right when I have to go over and start turning out the lights. I, uh, I timed it that way so I could get you behind those bookcases, uh, away from that fellow with the reading desk. Well, I'm afraid your timing is about 35 years off, Mr. Stone. <laughs> Oh, these light switches. Why do they always put them up so high? Aren't you going to tell that fellow it's time to go home? This is the way we tell them. We flick off the lights and then flick them on again. First off, like this. No, don't do that. No! What? Turn the lights on quick. Let me handle him. What's the idea of doing that, mister? That's supposed to be smarter, so... Oh, take it easy, fella. Take it easy. Or did he pay you to do it? Is that the deal? Huh? You tell George Brewster that the game doesn't amuse me anymore. You tell him if he keeps that up, I'll... I'll kill him. Oh, wait. I turned the lights out. It's closing time. What? Closing time? Oh. Yes, of course. What's wrong with you, buddy? You sick or something? Sick. Sick, yes. That's me, sick. Only mine's a childhood disease. Childhood. Childhood. 
No. What in the world was that? I don't know. Ever see him before? He's come in a couple of times this week. Spent all his time reading some reference books at the table. Seemed to be such a nice, polite young man. Considerate, kindly. Let's take a look at those books. Oh, my heavens, my, my heart is beating a mile a minute. And did you see his face? It frightened me. He was even more scared than we were. Of what? These are books he was reading? Yes. The Mind in Limbo, Abnormal Psychology, Modern Psychiatry. Why would he want books like this? Maybe he was looking for somebody in these books. Who? Himself, Bessie. Probably himself. Bessie was pretty upset, so after she locked up for the night, I started walking her toward the elevated station over on Lake Street. We'd walked a couple of blocks through the dark, empty streets when suddenly Bessie grabbed my arm. Mr. Stone, that man down the street, looking in that store window, mm -hmm. that's him. Ah, uh, yes, same gray raincoat, same lad. And look, Mr. Stone, what's that in his hand? That's a piece of pipe or something. He's breaking that store window. Yeah, you wait right here, honey. Be careful, Mr. Stone, be careful. The fellow was reaching through the broken window glass for whatever it was that had struck his fancy. He heard me coming and turned toward me. The wan streetlight did something to his face. It seemed twisted and torn. Blood was running down his hand where the glass had cut him. Then I saw what he'd taken from the window. A gun. What's the idea, pal? He spun around and started running for the elevated station down the block. And in the best tradition of the Rover boys, I stayed right on his tail. He turned back to see how I was doing. He stumbled over a trash can and a curb. I caught up with him, grabbing his arm. Let go of me. Leave me alone. Uh-uh. Let go of me. He slashed the gun across my face and began running again. I stopped long enough to take a quick inventory of my teeth. Up above, I heard the elevator train coming into the station. The young fellow had reached the station steps and was going up fast, trying to make that train. I reached for one of his legs. He turned and gave it to me right in the stomach. I folded up and I just sat there. I listened to the train pull away with the fellow on it and remembered what Bessie had said about him being such a nice, polite young man. After a while, I began to feel somewhat human again. I notified the police what had happened, and they sent a squad car out. After they left, I remembered something, a name this nice, polite young man had been throwing around, George Brewster. I found a phone book in a cigar store. There were three George Brewsters. The first number didn't answer. I tried the second. Hello? I'd like to speak to George Brewster. Oh, he's not in right now. Is there any message? Uh, who is this? I'm his sister. Is anything wrong? Well, if this is the right George Brewster, something is wrong. Is there any reason why a young fellow should want to kill your brother? Oh. Oh, that would be Morrison. Oh, I warned George. Morrison, huh? Tom Morrison. Uh, where does he live? Our old apartment, 612 Hamlin Avenue. What makes you think he wants to kill George? Well, this uh, character broke into a store tonight and stole a gun. I sort of think he had your brother in mind when he did it. Oh, no. What am I going to do? Well, lady, I know what I'm going to do. As fast as I hang up and get another nickel into this phone, I'm going to call the police. Oh, I feel so bad. It's not really Morrison's fault, poor man. Oh, no, no. He's, uh, he's just a prince of a fellow. Uh, goodbye, lady. I've got to make a call. But then it turned out that I didn't have a nickel... And on the way to the counter for change, I started wondering why the sister of the man he was going to kill felt sorry for Morrison. 
and why Bessie thought he was such a sweet character. And, well, the night was young, and 612 Hamlin Avenue couldn't wait, and I could call the cops later. Six twelve North Hamlin was a second floor flat on the north side. I got there a few minutes after eleven that night. All the windows were lit up. I rang the bell and I waited. I felt a little bead of sweat zigzagging down my face like it didn't have any place to go. Yes. Oh, it's you. No, no, let's not close the door just yet. In fact, let's push it open all the way. What do you want? My two front teeth and a few ribs. Get out of here. Now look, pal, don't tempt me. I came against my better judgment to listen to what you've got to say. If I leave now, the only place I'm going is the nearest police station. Police station? I guess maybe that would be the best. What? Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I guess you better call the police, mister. What do you think you're doing, calling my bluff? The phone's right behind you. Okay, buddy, you asked for it. Sure this is the way you want it? It's better this way. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't want to kill him. George Brewster? Yes, George Brewster. I know how it'll end if he doesn't stop. Stop what? Call the police, mister. You'd be doing me a favor. Since when have I got to do you favors? Well, why aren't you calling? I'm an Eagle Scout in good standing. I haven't done my good deed for today. You can't help me, mister. Stone is the name. What makes you so sure I can? Thanks for even wanting to. After that bad time I gave you. Bad time? That's the understatement of a year. Well, I was panic-stricken. He got me half crazy. Well, what have you got to lose if you tell me about it? No. Okay. Wait, wait. I don't know. I'm like a drowning man grasping at straws. Look, maybe if you talked to Brewster, told him what he's doing to me, maybe maybe he'd leave me alone. Well, you never can tell. But I'd have to know what I'm talking about. It's quite a story, mister. These lights, look at them. Bright as the sun, aren't they? Lamps, overhead chandeliers, look at them. I'd hate to see your light bills. Like some men need drugs. That's how I need these lights. Come again? My sanity depends on it, my very sanity. On these lights? It's a sickness. You've even got a name for it. Noctophobia, it's called. Fear of darkness. Fear of darkness, that's for kids. I... Uh, no, I, I uh, take that back. I'm sorry. Don't be. I quite agree. Kids are neurotic women. But in a man of my age, it's, it's quite ridiculous. Only when the day starts drawing to a close, when the night starts crowding in. Have you been to a doctor? Sure, I've been to doctors. They tell me I shouldn't feel too badly. Plenty of people with my trouble. A hangover from childhood. An illness. Like heart trouble is an illness. I'll take the heart trouble. Maybe you haven't gone to the right kind of a doctor. Maybe psychiatry could help you. Nothing's going to help me. George Brewster's going to see to that. What about this, uh, Brewster? He's trying to destroy me. With the strangest weapon of all. The strangest weapon of all? Yes. His weapon is the night. Listening to Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy. In a moment, we'll return to Nightbeat and Randy Stone. But first, we'd like to call your attention to another great NBC mystery adventure program. 
Every Sunday, you'll want to hear the exciting new Christopher London series with screen actor Glenn Ford in the title role. Stories for Christopher London are furnished by Earl Stanley Gardner, one of the most famous mystery story writers in America. There is no doubt about the greatness of Gardner's stories, and with the superb acting of Glenn Ford, Christopher London should be must-listening for every mystery fan. Make a listening date now to hear the exciting adventures of Christopher London every Sunday over most of these same NBC stations. And now, back to Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone in Nightbeat. It was a weird feeling standing in Morrison's brilliantly lighted parlor listening to him tell me about his terror of darkness. A sturdy, healthy-looking man trapped by a childhood nightmare. I felt guilt listening to him like I was eavesdropping into a dark corner of his mind that was nobody's business but his own. And yet he had to tell me because he needed help. Because George Brewster was using Morrison's fear to destroy him. I was sent to Chicago by our company to replace Brewster Stone. Until he found out why I was here, he couldn't do enough for me. He even got me this apartment. Greater love hath no man. Then he found out what the setup was. He changed fast enough. How did he find out about this uh, fear of yours? Well, I'm telling you how. The other night, the two of us were working alone in the big vault down at the office, working on some old account or other. And the overhead light, it blew out. Uh-huh. Well, it was so sudden, I, I couldn't help myself. I tried to keep calm, but... Well, it's like something tearing me to pieces inside. I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't... Finally, I had to run. So he found out no, about... No, 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 he, he wasn't sure, but... It started him thinking. Yes, I see. Next afternoon, he came over to my desk. He was jovial, friendly, like he'd been in the beginning. Saying we'd been at each other's throats long enough. Inviting me to have dinner with him that night. Right from work, we went to his favorite spot on the north side, a place called the Catacombs. I began feeling uneasy the moment I entered. How do you like this place, Tom? That's okay, it's fine. Uh, it's been a favorite of mine for years. One spot in particular, <laughs> the wine cellar. How do you feel about wine? I like it all right. Come along with me. I'm a wine man from way back. Uh, say, George, I wanted to talk to you about that little outburst last night. They have a different wine cellar here with a different temperature for each type of wine. I haven't been sleeping well, you see. And... Me, I prefer a Riesling myself. Well, here we are. Huh? At the white wine cellar. We'll select our own brand for our supper. Here, I'll open the door. Yeah, this is a privilege only an old customer like me can get away with. Come on. Dark down there. That's why they've got this candle here on the ledge. Got a match? Why, well, uh... A match, Tom. Mm. Yeah. Here. Okay. I'll get this candle going. Good. Now, let's go downstairs. Uh, George, uh... You think we should do this on our own? Done it hundreds of times. Been coming here for the last ten years. Well, now let's go down these stairs. Then. Careful. Yeah. George, I was explaining about last night. Candle uh, casts funny shadows, doesn't it? You notice how cool it is? Twenty feet below street level here. Look, I want to talk about last night. I, I don't want any misunderstanding. Huh? It's just that I've been working pretty hard. Look, Tom. Would it make you feel better if you showed me you're not afraid of the dark? 
Okay, you can show me. I'll blow out the candle. What are you trying to prove, Brewster? Nothing at all. It's your idea. Where are those matches I gave you? You gave me some matches? Well, I must have lost them. It's not going to work, Brewster. I'm not insane, you know. I can stay down here until you're quite satisfied. Funny, isn't it, about the darkness? The way it seems to close in on you. The way you start thinking you can't breathe. I know, I, I can see how someone could... What's the matter, Tom? This is ridiculous. Something so suffocating about a dark room. Stop it. Stop it. Only the heavy, smothering blackness. Stop it. Where are you going, Tom? Anything wrong? <laughs> Anything wrong? Anything wrong? I ran out of that cellar like a kid, like a kid scared to death, Stone. That was a rotten thing for him to do. Well, he's fighting for his job, Stone. He's not too young anymore. He can't start all over again, so we'll do anything. Oh, great. I'm sure he's told the people down at work. I'm sure they're all laughing at me behind my back. You don't know what that does to me. I can imagine. Today I found a new desk lamp on my desk, courtesy of George Brewster. Every day, something like that. Did you ask him why he's doing it? He won't admit he's doing anything. He says it's all my imagination. Maybe I ought to see a doctor. Or better still, maybe a change of climate would help. Well, I'd leave town in a minute. Only my future's at stake, too. Before I let him drive me crazy, I'll kill him. Well, I'm going now. I'm going to talk to this bird. Where does he live? Out in the suburbs, Lake Forest. He lives with his sister. All right, I'll give you a ring as soon as I've seen him. Mr. Stone, I... hope you can do some good. Yeah. Oh. Say, I almost forgot something. What? Uh, that gun you made off with. Well, I... Maybe uh... if we're lucky, we can talk the store owner out of pressing charges. I'll try it. That was a crazy thing to do. I was so desperate. Wouldn't have done you much good when they put them in the window. They never loaded. I'll let you in on a secret. If I hadn't known that, I wouldn't have been such a hero coming here tonight. I'll let you in on a secret, Mr. Stone. You can get bullets without a license. The gun's loaded now. Oh, oh, oh great. All right, go, go and get it for me. All right. Yes, I want to give it to you. It's in my bedroom. He started for the bedroom. And then it was almost like a comedy routine where after the big buildup, the punchline comes right out on cue. The moment he entered the other room, every light in the house suddenly went out. What happened to the lights? Take it easy. Where's the fuse box? I don't know. Never had any occasion to use it. Besides, if it was a fuse, all the lights wouldn't go out. It wasn't you. Use your head. How could I do it? I'm getting out of here. All lights out, too. Stone, Well, I... maybe something went wrong with the central wire. But why should it happen exactly now? Wait, huh? The downstairs apartment. Their lights are on. If it was the wire... All right, I... all right. Let's ask them where the fuse box is. Mr. Morris. Uh, my lights went out. It, it might be a fuse. Where are the fuse boxes for these apartments? Out in the back. I'll get a flashlight and show you. Here we are. The fuse box is right here below our meters. Whenever the people from the light company come out, they have a dickens of a time finding it. Will you hold the flashlight steady and let me take a look? Wait a minute, Stone. Lower the flashlight just a little. Huh? It's not the fuse. Look at the master switch on my meter. Look at the one of Mrs. Graham's. Why, somebody pulled your switch down to off. Yes. 
Yes, someone surely did. Well, here, let me push it up. There. Look upstairs. All your lights are on again. That's probably some kids playing a joke. Now, how do you suppose the rascals ever found it? It's so well hidden. I, uh, I've got a theory that all kids come equipped with a special radar of finding things like this. Mrs. Graham, tell this gentleman who used to live in my apartment before I did. Why? Tell him. Why, you know. Even got the apartment for you. Your friend, Mr. Brewster. But what is that? Tom, that doesn't prove he did it. For me, it does, Stone. For me, it does. Morrison went around to the front of his house and up the stairs to his flat. I waited in the hallway until he came down again. He looked different. His face was hard and set. His eyes were like chunks of glass punched into the flesh. What are you waiting for, Stone? When we were so rudely interrupted, you were going for the gun. I've got it now. Oh, yes. Uh, hand it over. I'll bring it back. No, thanks. Well, where are you going and what are you going to do? I'm fighting for my sanity, my life. He's never going to do this to me again, never. I can't let you do that. You're not going to have to. The minute you leave, I'm going to call every cop in the book. Yes, that's what you do, isn't it? Yes. Then I'd better give you the gun. <laughs> <laughs> This could become habit-forming. I dropped to my knees in the hallway, and then the hallway subdivided like something under a microscope, and there were two hallways, and then there were four. And then everywhere I looked, there were hallways. Morrison tried to push me aside and get by me, only it was a whole circle of Morrison's. I grabbed at his legs to hold him back, and it was like grabbing at a centipede. Then all the Morrison's in all the hallways brought all their guns down on my one poor head. And that was it, brothers and sisters, that was it. Feeling better, Mr. Stone? Oh, if I felt any better, I'd call an embalmer. Oh, what a business. I heard a commotion, and I came out, and you were lying here. Oh, is this my head, or is it a cantaloupe? Oh, oh, how did it happen, and where's Mr. Morrison? Oh, Morrison, Morrison, yes. How long ago did you hear this commotion? Oh, just a couple of minutes ago. You came out of it real fast. Yeah, I've got an iron constitution. Have you got a, got a phone? Well, yes, but don't you think you Come better... on, lady, grab my head, put it back on nice and neat, and let's get to that phone. Hello, this is the fellow who called you before, Miss Brewster, about Morrison and your brother. Oh, yes. He's not there yet, huh? No, my brother is... I don't mean your brother, I mean Morrison. What? No, is, is he... Oh, yes, he sure is. Now, give me your address, and the minute you hang up, get away from your house as fast as you can. Morrison's got a gun, and he's half crazy. Maybe we should call the police. Well, maybe we should, but I'm not going to. They'd throw the book at him ten years for attempted murder. I think I can stop him before he does anything. Oh, I can't tell you how sorry I am about this. Lady, you and your brother should be. <laughs> The cab got me out to their Lake Forest house in less than 20 minutes. The house was on a hill, and a flagstone path wound round and round for a city block until it reached the front porch. As I ran up the walk, my head started rattling like a handful of pennies in a tin cup. I felt weak and tired. All the time, I tried not to think about what I'd find when I reached the house. And now I was at the end of the path, walking toward the front porch. A nerve deep in my throat started jangling like a burglar alarm. The house was in darkness. And Morrison was standing beneath a little porch light, his gun pointed right at me. 
You won't quit, will you, Stone? What have you done with him, Tom? He hasn't done anything with him yet, Mr. Stone. Huh? Who is... I'm sitting over here at the end of the porch. I'm George's sister. Oh. I didn't see you in the dark. Why didn't you get away like I told you? I won't hurt her. It's him. He'll be coming along soon. George would never have done what he did. I begged him not to. To take advantage of a man's weakness. Well, Mr. Brewster is coming home. What? His car is stopping at the bottom of the hill. Now he's starting the long climb. Morrison, listen to me. You just sit there, the both of you. And I must insist that you be very quiet. Please, listen to me. Please. Please. Keep coming up that path, Brewster. It's a long, long way. You must listen to me. Morrison. You don't know what you're waiting doing. near the porch light, the gun George in his hand. George hurt you. He shouldn't have done that. Far below the small what figure of George Brewster so making a long, slow don't climb. You realize that you're going to kill George because he found out about your fear. But don't you see? George is afraid too. Of bigger things. Of being 53 and seeing his whole life going down. Brewster had stopped at the first landing to That's catch his why breath. He hurt you. Now he was climbing up the path again. He was fighting. Maybe a hundred steps from his death. I found myself counting the steps. Why are you afraid of the Don't you see? If you weren't afraid, George couldn't hurt you anymore. Please, listen to me. Keep your voice down. If you try to warn him, you both die too. Keep coming, Brewster. Yes, he kept coming. No more than 70 steps now. What is there to fear about the dog? The girl's voice going on and on. Nothing in it. Brewster getting closer. All it does is hide the world. Less than 50 steps now. 40 steps. 30 steps. If you believe in God, if you believe in your own soul, how can you fear the night? What is there in the darkness that can hurt you? There's such peace in the darkness. After the heat of day is gone, the rush, the tumult, the struggle, you can breathe easy again. You can let the tightness inside unwind. He's almost close enough. Listen to me. Please listen. It's not going to work, Miss Brewster. I'm going to try and rest. Wait. Miss Brewster. Stay where you are, Miss Brewster. No. You must see me in the light. I tell you, stay where... Tom. Look at her. I didn't realize. I'm not afraid. What right have you to fear? Julie, is that you on the porch? What right have you to fear, Mr. Morris? What right? Oh, what a long climb. Must be getting old. Well, what are you doing here, Morrison? And who's this? Oh, don't uh, mind me. I just came along for the ride. What's this all about? I... I just came to... To say goodbye, Brewster. You're leaving? Yes. I'm going back and tell them you've... You've done a good job here. It's not fair to replace you after so many years. You sure nobody scared you away, Morrison? Look at him, Brewster. Does he look like he's afraid? I don't know if Julie cured Morrison of his fear of darkness. Cure is a pretty strong word. But maybe she helped. I kind of think so. I do know this. It's going to be mighty hard for Tom to fear the darkness, knowing Julie is not afraid. 
But neither Tom nor I will ever forget what we saw as the porch light lit up her face. Julie Brewster, who did not fear the darkness, was blind. And now that part of the story they always print in heavy type, the moral. And don't smile so indulgently. Morals are very nice things. Some of my best friends have morals. <laughs> you know, seriously, Julie's whole life is a moral in itself. And trying to top it is like trying to follow Al Jolson with a mammy song. The best you can do is tip your hat to the fellow who wrote, Out of the night that covers me, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. He must have had someone like Julie in mind. Well, four o'clock in the morning, a stale cup of coffee, a tired sandwich, and a story to dictate, and I worry about my unconquerable soul. Ah, me. Give me a rewrite. Nightbeat, a new dramatic series, stars Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Nightbeat is written by Larry Marcus and directed by Warren Lewis. Music by Frank Worth. Listen next week at this same time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. The stories that come out of the shadows to find their way into Nightbeat. Stay tuned for Brian Donlevy and Dangerous Assignment on... And what you heard just happen there with that announcement was a lesson in keeping time. Because if you did not close your show on time, the network would close it for you with those three chimes of NBC. And that's exactly what happened there. This next program was a summer replacement for Suspense, and it's called Somebody Knows. Now, this is about true crime. And the episode here involves the Black Delilah case from Los Angeles, and they're offering a $5,000 reward uh, for anyone who could supply information. So if that doesn't grab your attention and you know something, then and you're that somebody that knows you might want to have gotten the $5,000, but unfortunately, it's a bit too late for that. But you can still speculate on who did the Black Delilah murder. I think a lot of people have been. Let's see what they thought about it back when it happened. Here's Somebody Knows from 1950. Suspense, which is heard on Thursday nights at this hour, is taking its customary summer holiday. Suspense returns to the air one week from now on Thursday, August 31st. Ladies and gentlemen, a $5,000 reward will be offered on the program immediately following this announcement. You out there, you who think you've committed the perfect crime, the perfect murder, that there are no clues, no witnesses, that your identity is unknown, listen. Somebody knows. Yes, you, wherever you may be, no matter where you're hiding, somewhere, sometime, someone listening to this program is going to bring you to justice. 
Yes? Somebody knows. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Somebody Knows, a program conceived in the public interest, dedicated to aiding the forces of law and order in the solution of this nation's unsolved crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to recreate for you tonight all the known facts in an actual unsolved murder. Somewhere, someone among you has had contact with a killer or killers. Someone whose identity need never be known has seen evidence or possesses information that can lead to the solution of this crime. In the public interest, the Columbia Broadcasting System offers $5,000 reward for evidence or information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer in this unsolved murder. We ask you then to please listen carefully, for you may be the one to win this reward. Somebody knows. It may be you. And now we open the files on one of this nation's unsolved murders. It's homicide file number DR-295771, the Los Angeles, California Police Department. The unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. It is approximately 6.45 a.m., the morning of Wednesday, January 15, 1947. In the southwest section of Los Angeles, California, in the houseless 3900 block on South Norton Avenue, a vacant, weed-overgrown lot is barely visible in the quiet darkness just before dawn. Then an old battered sedan speeds south on Norton Avenue, suddenly swings sharply into the curb opposite that vacant lot. The car remains at that location for approximately three minutes. During that time, the driver makes two hasty trips across the paved sidewalk between the car and the vacant lot. Then, when the task is completed, the driver re-enters the car and speeds away. It is now 11.05 on the morning of Wednesday, January 15, 1947. A monitor on a police complaint switchboard in the communications division of the Los Angeles Police Department answers an incoming call. Los Angeles Police Department Complaint Division. Hello, I, I want to report a body. A body, ma'am? Yes, a, a nude body. It, it's lying there just off the sidewalk in the vacant lot. Where is this lot, ma'am? It's in the 3900 block on South Norton. Norton Avenue. Thank you. We'll have somebody out there right away. It is now 11.07, Wednesday morning, January 15th, 1947. Radio car 302, manned by officers F.S. Perkins and W.E. Fitzgerald of the University Division, is cruising in the southwestern section of Los Angeles. Code 2, a 390 down on the west side of Norton Avenue, 3900 block. Uh-oh. Crank it up, Fitz. Two, yeah. 390 down on the west side of Norton, 3900 block. Car 302, acknowledge. 302, got it. In response to the Code 2 broadcast, the radio car proceeds immediately to the 3900 block on Norton Avenue. 
pulls over to the curb on the west side of the street. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. The nude body of a young woman is lying face up in the weeds, a few inches from the sidewalk. Her face and forehead have been brutally slashed and beaten, the body itself horribly mutilated. It has been cut completely in two. Better notify university detectives. Homicide's going to have a job on his hands. The officers report their findings to the university police division. What is to prove to be one of the greatest manhunts in the history of the Los Angeles Police Department is underway. Early efforts to identify the victim of the murder prove unsuccessful. And at 7.25 o'clock on the night of January 15, 1947, an all-points broadcast is put out. Attention all police officers, all cars and divisions. Wanted identification of this person found murdered this AM. Description follows. Female, American, young, height 5 foot 6, weight 118 pounds. All fingernails bitten to quick. Black hair recently henned. Eyes grayish green. Small nose up tipped slightly. High forehead and hairline. No earlobe. Meanwhile, Dr. Frederick D. Newbar, chief autopsy surgeon of the coroner's office, makes a post-mortem examination that lasts three full hours. Then he reports... The immediate cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. There were rope marks around her neck, wrists, and ankles. These, along with the severe mutilations of the body, indicate the victim was probably tied and sadistically tortured before her death. Fingerprints are taken at the morgue, and at 2 a.m. on the morning of January 16, 1947, enlarged photographs are flashed by wire photo to the FBI in Washington. Emergency. Request immediate search. And within five hours, a reply comes in from the FBI. Positive identification of prints made from those recorded in this office, September 1943. Subject, Elizabeth Short. Age, that date, 19 years. Clerk at Camp Cook, Lompoc, California, Post Exchange. Arrested Santa Barbara, California, for drinking with soldiers in local cafe. Description follows. Height, 5 foot 6, weight 100. With the positive identification of the victim as Elizabeth Short, the police investigation swings into high gear. Her mother, Mrs. Phoebe May Short of Medford, Massachusetts, is notified and within hours arrives at the Los Angeles airport. Elizabeth wanted to get into pictures. That was her principal ambition. But she wrote to me ten days ago that she was working in a naval hospital then in San Diego. I just can't believe that oh, my sure. daughter is... Dead. Sure, I know Beth Short. She was a swell kid. I'll say she had men friends, plenty of them. Gee, she was a pretty kid with that dark hair and that pretty white skin. And when she got all dolled up in that sheer black clothes... Uh, that's how she got her nickname, you know. That's why everybody called her the Black Dahlia. The police now turn to San Diego in an attempt to determine the events that led to the killing of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. 
At her last known address in San Diego, information is obtained that promises to lead to a major break in the case. Well, I haven't seen Beth for a week or so. I, I understood she was going back to Hollywood. Some man was going to drive her back. She called him Red. I think he used to be a Marine Corps flyer. Well, let's see. I, I think it was the night... Yes, the night of January 8th that she left to drive back with him. Now the police have something more definite to go on. And for three days, a search is made for this unknown man. Then, on January 20th, 1947, at police headquarters in downtown Los Angeles... Say, I... I understand you want to talk to me. I... I'm the man who left San Diego with Elizabeth Short. I... First met her maybe a week or ten days before Christmas. I was down there on a business trip. I, I saw her standing alone on a street corner, and you know how it is. How well did you get to know her? Well, we, we had dinner together a few times. That was about all. Mm, what about this trip to Los Angeles? Well, she heard that I was going there, and she asked if she could go with me. So I said, sure. That was on the night of January 8th? That was the night we left, yeah, uh, January 8th. Mm. When did you reach Los Angeles? Well, it was about 6 o'clock the next night. January 9th? Yes, sir. It doesn't take that long to drive here from San Diego. No, we, uh, we stayed at a motel the night before. Nothing wrong with it, you understand. There were different rooms. The reason was we, we didn't leave San Diego until late, and I, I wasn't in any hurry to get back here. I see. What happened when you got into L.A.? Well, as I said, we drove into L.A. about 6 o'clock that night, in the downtown section, that is. It is shortly before 6 in the evening, January 9th, 1947. Cars approaching the corner of 6th and Los Angeles streets in downtown Los Angeles. Within the car are Elizabeth Short, the man with whom she'd driven up from San Diego. It's been a swell trip, Red. I sure appreciate the lift. Forget it. It was a break for me having company on the way up. And as long as she had to come up anyway... Yeah, I'm going to meet my sister. She... Say, isn't that the Greyhound bus station up ahead? Yeah, that's right. Oh, can I stop there for a minute? I, I want to check my bags. It'll only take a minute. Well, sure. Glad to. Elizabeth Short takes her bags into the station and checks them there. All of her clothes, except those she's wearing, are in those bags. Then she gets back into the car, and they drive off. Several minutes later, the car pulls up in front of the Biltmore Hotel at 5th and Olive Streets. Well, here's the Biltmore, Beth. That's where you want to go, isn't it? Yeah. My sister should be in there now. Thanks again for everything. It was really swell. Coming back to town again soon? I expect to, one of these days. Well, be sure and give me a ring when you do. Try the hotel on Orange Drive. If I'm not there, they'll probably know where I am. So long. Goodbye, Beth. As the car drives away... Elizabeth Short stands there a moment, alone, looking after it. Then she turns and walks into the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel. It is not until six days later, the morning of Wednesday, January 15, 1947, that she's heard from again, when a nude, mutilated body is discovered lying in a vacant lot the body that was once Elizabeth Short, 
It was once the gay and laughing Black Dahlia. In just a moment, we'll continue with homicide file number DR295771 of the Los Angeles, California Police Department. The unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. The United States Armed Forces need volunteers today in every branch of the services. You have the chance to choose not only the branch, but the type of work which you feel will be of the most benefit to you in the years ahead. May we suggest that you go to your nearest recruiting office to see if you are eligible to volunteer and inquire about the many opportunities open to you. Now back to Somebody Knows and a true case history of an actual murder. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we'll continue with the rest of the factual information concerning homicide file number DR-295771 the records of the Los Angeles, California Police Department. The unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. Remember, $5,000 will be paid for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her killer. Police check and recheck the story of the man who drove the Black Dahlia from San Diego to Los Angeles and dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel at approximately 6 o'clock on the evening of January 9th, 1947. Then this statement is issued. We released this man with a clean bill of health. There's no evidence to... <laughs> There's no evidence to connect him with the murder of Elizabeth Shaw. Then, on the morning of January 24, 1947, Robert Hyman, manager of a cafe at 1136 South Crenshaw Boulevard, tells the police... It was early this morning. There was a trash can in front of the cafe, and I spotted a pair of shoes and a purse on top of the stuff there. The, uh, the, the purse was large, made of some black plastic stuff, and the shoes looked like black suede. They uh, were stuffed in the purse with the heels sticking out. Very high heels, you know. I, I didn't think anything of it at the time... And then it hit me. Maybe they were a clue to the Black Dahlia killing. Found her only about 20 blocks away, so I went back outside. City trash collector had already picked up all the stuff. The police immediately make a widespread search for the trash collector's truck and finally located at the Los Angeles Byproducts Company. They talked to Mr. K.B. Schroeder, traffic manager of the disposal plant. Well, yes, that truck came in here all right, but it's already dumped its load. Where was it dumped? Why, under that big pile of refuse over there. Trucks have been dumping stuff on it all week. We'll still have to go through it, find that purse and the shoe. What? Oh, okay, sure thing. I'll stop the work and get all the men busy on it. We'll run the whole pile through a conveyor belt. It may take a few hours, but the stuff will turn off if it's in there. For several hours, the conveyor belt carries the refuse from the giant dump pile past the waiting men. Then, finally... There they are. Stop the belt. I see them. There they are. The purse and shoes are recovered from the trash and examined minutely. They answer the description of the purse and shoes worn by Elizabeth Short the night she walked alone into the Biltmore Hotel and disappeared. There are new heel tips on the shoes, and after a detailed, thorough search, the police finally locate the cobbler who had repaired them. 
Sure, sure. I put on those heels. Maybe three, four weeks ago. I remember the girl who brought them in, all right. Sure, I remember. But uh, she's not the one of those pictures. Nah, she's not the black guy. On the following day, January 25th, 1947, the first real break in the case occurs. A phone call comes into the homicide division. Homicide, Hanson. Uh, this is the United States Post Office calling. Postal Inspector Division. Yes? We have something down here that I think will interest you. It connects with the Black Dahlia case. Oh? What is it? It's an envelope. And according to the address on it, it contains some personal belongings of Black Dahlia. Are you interested? We'll be right over. <laughs> The envelope is examined in the postal inspector's office. It is addressed in letters clipped from newspaper accounts of the crime. The crude address reads, Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. The envelope is opened. Now here is Detective Sergeant Harry Hansen's statement as to its contents. The envelope contained a black address book, a birth certificate, some pictures and calling cards. We're completely satisfied that the contents of that envelope are actually the belongings of the Black Dahlia. It is the black address book, however, that is of primary importance to the police. Though 125 pages have been torn out of it, it still contains the names of some 75 men. Contact with these men is begun immediately. Here are some typical results. Well, I, I will admit I did pick her up. That was last October. I just took her to a drive-in. Never saw her again. Well, I... I don't know anything about this. Oh, sure, sure, I knew her. That is, I took her out twice. She phoned me a couple of times afterwards and asked for money, but I, I, I didn't see her again. I didn't know anything about this. That's right. I went out with her a number of times. Sure, I did. But, you know, those things. I haven't seen her for maybe six months now. You know those things, huh? Two days after the receipt of the envelope and the little black book, another piece of mail comes into police headquarters. On the outside, in addition to the address, is this puzzling inscription. Sorry, Greenwich Village, not Cotton Club. Homicide officers then open the envelope and examine the contents. Here, Captain. Ordinary penny postcard. Yes, uh, there's something written on it. Let's see. Wait a minute. Oh, listen to this. It says, uh, here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. Hmm. And it's signed, Black Dahlia Avenger. The card is written in ink with a bold, crude hand. There are no fingerprints on it. Postal authorities say that the new message was mailed the night before in downtown Los Angeles. Captain Jack Donahoe immediately publishes an answer to it. To the killer of Elizabeth Short, if you want to surrender, as indicated by the postcard now in our hands, I will meet you at any public location at any time, or at the homicide detail office in the city hall. Communicate immediately by telephone or by mail. On January 29th, the police receive another message. It is contained in an envelope addressed in typewriting to Captain Donahoe. It states, I have changed my mind about surrendering. I'm afraid I won't get a fair deal. At 1 p.m., 
With no further word received from the message sender, another answer is drafted and signed by Captain Donahoe, Deputy Chief W.J. Bradley, and Deputy Chief Thad Brown. It states in part, To the slayer of Elizabeth Short, It is not within the power of any police officer or any police department to make terms. And the sentence upon conviction lies within the discretion of the courts. However, all police officers are well aware that there are two sides to every story. And we can only promise that you will receive fair treatment and a just trial. No further word is received from the self-identifying killer. Then, shortly afterward, another strange phenomenon occurs in the Black Dahlia case. On February 6, 1947, at Fort Dix, New Jersey, a corporal approaches the desk of his commanding officer and stands at attention. Well, Corporal, what is it? I have a confession to make, sir. Confession? Yes, sir. Well, what is it? You read something about the Black Dahlia murder case, the one that took place about a month ago in Los Angeles? Yes, I believe I've read something about it. Why? Well, sir, I was on leave in Los Angeles at the time, and... Well, sir, I'm the killer of the Black Dahlia. On February 8th, two days later... The corporal signs a 50-page statement, a confession to the murder of Elizabeth Short. In addition, he produces a pair of trousers on which bloodstains are found. The Homicide Bureau makes a very careful study of all his claims. The result? The corporal's statement is confused and wandering. No details of the murder are included. The facts that have been given have been very carefully checked and the conclusion reached. It's our opinion that the corporal is not suspect in the murder of Elizabeth Short. In the able hands of Sergeant Ed Barrett, the Central Homicide Division files on the murder of Elizabeth Short continue to grow. Other confessions are received and found false, until a total of 23 persons have claimed to be the killer of the Black Dahlia, a total believed to be unprecedented in American police annals. New clues are examined, new suspects questioned. The investigation continues. And today... Three years and eight months after the discovery of the body of Elizabeth Short, the sentiment of the Homicide Division of the Los Angeles Police Department is still expressed in this way. It is our intention to keep the files open in the death of Elizabeth Short until we've obtained the arrest and conviction of her killer. We consider the investigation to be still very much alive, although at this time the identity of the murderer still remains unknown. Unknown? No. The killer of Elizabeth Short is not unknown. Somewhere in whatever town or city this person is hiding, someone of you has seen him today, has spoken to him, eaten lunch and dinner with him, knows the location of the spot where he beat and tortured her over three and a half years ago. No, the cold-blooded killer who took the life of the Black Dahlia is not unknown. Somebody knows. Now listen carefully, please. Listen, all of you, wherever you may be. We're going to give you a recapitulation of pertinent facts in the unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. Better make a note of them. And remember, by following the instructions we shall give you in a moment, you may be the one to earn a $5,000 reward. Now, here are the actual facts in the case. Elizabeth Short, 22 years of age, known as the Black Dahlia, 
was found dead in a vacant lot in the 3900 block on South Norton Avenue in Los Angeles, California. The time was approximately 11 o'clock in the morning, Wednesday, January 15, 1947. The police believed that she had been held prisoner and tortured by a sadistic pervert for some time before death. Possibly for as long as six days since her whereabouts are unknown. From the time that she entered the Biltmore Hotel at six o'clock on the evening of January 9th. Her statement that she was intending to meet her sister there was found to be false. Now, here is one of the most important facts concerning this case. No trace of the clothing she was wearing at the time she entered the hotel has ever been found. Here's a description of that clothing as contained in a special police bulletin published at the time. Please listen carefully. She was wearing a black suit, no collar on coat, probably cardigan style. White fluffy blouse, black suede high-heeled shoes, nylon stockings, white gloves, and a full-length beige coat. She carried a black plastic handbag about 8 by 12 inches in size. Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you possesses information that may have a bearing on the unsolved murder of Elizabeth Short, Black Dahlia, and please don't send guesses or hunches, but only actual, authentic information... Follow these instructions so that your name and identity need never be made known unless you wish. Now listen carefully. Write your information on a plain sheet of paper. Do not sign your name. Instead, sign it with six numbers, any arrangement of any six numbers. Then tear off a blank corner of that paper with a ragged edge. Write the same six numbers on that corner and keep it. Mail the rest of the paper with the information to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. You need tell no one what you have done. Mail your letter to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California. And if the information you've supplied leads to the arrest and conviction of the killer of Elizabeth Short, we'll announce your signature number on your local CBS station. Then, if you don't want your name to be known, go to your lawyer or doctor, your priest, minister, or rabbi, and have him present the torn corner of the paper to any CBS station. In this way, you do not need to appear in person. If the torn corner matches the original paper containing the information, the $5,000 reward will be yours. Remember, you out there, you who have murdered in cold blood and think you've gotten away with it, listen, you cannot escape. There is no perfect crime. Remember, you are not unknown. Somebody knows. Tonight's case was written by Sidney Marshall from information in the files of the Los Angeles, California Police Department. Research was by Maurice Zim. Music was composed and played by Milton Charles. Somebody Knows is a James L. Safier production in association with CBS by arrangement with the Chicago Sun-Times and is based on a copyright owned by W.L. Finstad. It was narrated and directed by Jack Johnstone. In order to be eligible for the reward... Letters containing actual, authentic information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers of Elizabeth Short must be addressed to Somebody Knows, Hollywood, California, and must be postmarked not later than midnight, September 13, 1950. Arrest of the guilty person or persons must occur within 90 days of that date, and conviction must be within one year of tonight's broadcast. If more than one person gives the information leading to conviction... Our judges will divide the $5,000 reward among them 
in proportion to the importance the judges attach to the facts supplied. And in this, the decision of our judges will be final. This is Frank Goss saying good night, and remember... Somebody knows. There's always an unusual adventure in store for you when Casey, crime photographer, takes his camera in hand to track down the criminal to his lair. Casey, crime photographer, is a regular Thursday night CBS feature. Stay tuned for his latest adventure, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, where you find Arthur Godfrey's daytime program every Monday through Friday, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more old-time radio. I hope you can join us then. Till then, this is Jim Dolan thanking you for listening.